0: I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City.
1: And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire.
0: And this is Conversations with Philatelists.
1: So, Charles, our guest
0: today, uh, I think you know him better than I do. For once, I actually carried my own weight around here, and I uh, i got today's to um, <laughs> guest. I cracked this one down. Uh, so I'm, I'm proving my worth. But no, Wayne Youngblood is someone who's been a good friend, uh, basically, since I started going to shows. He was someone mm-hmm. who was... Um, very supportive and just very friendly early on. He's a he's a very approachable guy, um, yeah. and uh, Wayne is someone who I love seeing at shows. Whenever I see he's going to have a booth or um, you know be there in any capacity, I always get excited um, because Wayne's just a, a really great guy. He's um, a very eclectic collector. I'm sure he'll talk about that, but he, everything he collects is interesting. He doesn't have to explain why this is yeah. cool. He tells you what it is, and you're just like, wow, I never even thought about that aspect of the hobby before. So, um, so w- w- Wayne is a great guy. I haven't seen him in, in months. Obviously. I haven't seen anybody in months, <laughs> um, but, but Wayne's one of the ones I miss. Luckily he, uh, uh, he and I email or, or see each other on Facebook. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of feel like I've, I've been in touch with him, but it'll be nice to, to see him and, and talk to him uh, on here
1: yeah I'd only met him a couple times he works kind of closely with with Alex too in the YPLF at least for the author track um, I remember the first time I met him was in 2013 at the Milwaukee show when he sat down with a bunch of the, the youth there and, and gave a almost presentation on what it's like to be an author in the philatelic world
0: very supportive he, he, he's um almost like a stamp professor he teaches yes. seminar he gives um lectures at stamp shows he, he's really um, again professorial i think is a good word mm-hmm. so giving with his knowledge um, yes he just wants to teach he wants to impart his knowledge on others which mm-hmm. i just have the utmost respect for
1: yeah yeah he's a great oh. guy all around Most like all the people we interview. That's
0: true. Yeah, we're not we're not picking uh, we're not picking bad ones. Um, let's get him on. Let's 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 get Wayne in. Let's see what he has to say. See how he's doing. Bring him in. Hello. Hi. Wayne. How's it going? Good. How you guys doing? Good.
2: Good. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Are you uh, you guys can hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you perfect.
0: And I'm liking I'm liking the beard.
2: Yeah, thank you. This is my uh, this is my COVID hair and beard. I'm,
0: uh, I I gave up on mine a couple of months ago. You uh, you <laughs> lasted a lot longer than I did with the beard.
2: Yeah, I'm at, I'm at the point now where I'm actually having to to groom it and use beard oil and stuff now. Yeah. It's it's by far the fullest beard I've ever had.
1: <laughs> yeah, I saw you on one of the first uh, stamp chats. It was a lot a lot smaller. Right, right. Yeah,
0: that's a good segue, Michael. You did one of the APS stamp chats. Right, one of, the first you, ones. one of the first ones, and you also were one of the uh, summer seminar uh, uh, lecturers, were you not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you've been keeping very busy in times of COVID. You um, you seem to have um, uh, you know have, have had no trouble um, finding ways to teach and educate and promote the hobby, um, even though we're all you know. I haven't seen you since. Uh, I don't even know when the last time I saw you was, but but you, you you've had no trouble um, staying active.
2: Oh well, absolutely not. I mean, you know, all all other issues aside, my publishing schedule has remained consistent throughout everything because I work out of the home anyway. So uh, that has uh, kept me more than busy. Uh, added to that, of course, is is everybody else has all the time in the world right now. So I get lots of emails and phone <laughs> calls and such. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, Yeah, no, I I, I stay more than busy.
0: When you talk about your publishing schedule, you're up to five publications, right? Uh, Well, well, kind of, actually, kind of five and a half
2: ish, and headed towards a little bit more. But yeah, I I currently edit, uh, of course, topical time. I've edited that for more than ten years at this point. Um, And then, in addition to that, there's the American Stamp Collector and Dealer. Uh, the Collector's Club uh, Philatelist for uh, New York, uh, the Confederate Philatelist for the uh, CSA, and uh, Duck Tracks for the Duck Stamp people. Did I miss anything? And then uh, the, uh, I'm actually breaking our, our eldest son into the publishing, philatelic publishing field too. Uh, he is um, now doing all the graphics work for the German Postal Specialist and uh we'll be taking over at the beginning of the year the uh uh pennsylvania philatelist i'll do the editing he'll do the graphic design and i'm going to slowly turn some of the other publications uh, the design and, and graphic stuff over to him
1: that's fantastic how old is his how old is he he is 38 wow and does he collect himself as well (laughs) <laughs> he's actually beginning, despite, despite
2: himself, he's actually uh, beginning to get interested. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, of course, one of, one of the things we, we have three sons and one of the things is, as they were growing up is I never really wanted to push uh, my hobby too hard on them. I wanted them to be able to, uh, to find the interest if that's something that, that they thought they'd like to do or not. Um, because I've seen so many times, uh, you know, parents who who really push their kids into collecting and the, and the kids as soon as they can run away from it screening. And so I I always wanted it to be, certainly I would love to have had all of them collect and they all did at various times. They certainly all did their, uh, stamp collecting merit badge and scouts and such. But, uh, uh, he's the one who actually showed the most interest and uh, every time we send him something of course i put on as many interesting stamps as possible and and things that reflect his interests and and uh he's yeah he's actually beginning to uh to collect whether he'll become hardcore or not is
0: another question but uh, but we'll see but he's he does have an interest how did you yourself get uh started on collecting so you grew up in new mexico and sure. that- There there must not have been, you know, it's not like um, being in a a major city where there's shows. What what was it like for you early on uh, collecting?
2: Well... My uh, my introduction to, to collecting actually came from my dad. He was uh, more of a numismatist than than he wasn't interested in stamps at all, actually. But uh, I wanted to collect coins too. And as as a little kid, of course, I didn't really have access to money or coins to speak of. So uh, and it was always you know secondary. I mean, he had his interests, and there's no way I can compete with that. <clears throat> so at some point, he thought. I might be interested in stamps. And he, at the time he worked at the Los Alamos laboratory. Uh, And so he started bringing home uh, pieces of packages and, you know, the mail that came in uh, to the, uh, to the lab. And uh, so I immediately started, you know, developing an interest in worldwide stamps. Uh, The, the other story I like to tell, and of course, Charles, you, you know, I've got the exhibit and I've studied the secret drop boxes of Los Alamos for many, many years. And of course those covers are incredibly rare. I like to say that I, well, I don't like to say, but I I admit frequently that I probably had a hand in making them rare, uh, because at the time when I was a little kid and I was asking dad to ask his coworkers to bring, uh, stamps and mail home uh he was bringing me covers and i was tearing all the stamps off and soaking them <laughs> off and of course uh, a lot of the people that he worked with had been there during the war so I'm, I'm sure i destroyed a number of dropbox covers that i would love to have now um but but the, at, the, at the time you know my interest kind of exploded and of course it never as you can tell never went away but there wasn't um, I wasn't a member of a stamp club and I didn't have a mentor or anything so uh, my initial means of removing stamps from paper was to just peel them right off Uh, and then at some point I read something that you know that damages stamps so I thought well steam them over the tea kettle so I scalded my fingers many times trying to Steam stamps off before some, suddenly suddenly to give, give them a bath you know throw them in the water for a little bit and, and uh, so then that actually became sorting and soaking became my primary act, activity for a number of years I uh, frequently bought multiple pounds worth of, of on paper mix mixtures and uh, one of those went south very badly at a point I bought uh, those like twenty pounds of Great Britain mixture and I thought. I could be efficient. I'll just throw, you know, about half of that in the bathtub all at one time. And, you know, four days later, as it was turning into a goopy mass of pulp, uh, I was still trying to peel stamps out of it. And I realized that didn't work so well either. Uh, so th- there are a lot of mistakes were made. A lot of stamps were destroyed uh, before I actually became a member of a stamp club. And, and uh, of course, once, once I did as a teenager, then that, that helped a lot. Uh, and I, Received some appropriate
1: guidance, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> so what, we talked about oh, Michael. Go ahead. Go, go, I was just going to ask you what what was your first area of expertise? You're so you know you so know so much. You've written so many articles, books. You know what well, was the first thing that kind of said? I'm going to look at this in depth.
2: Prob- probably. Uh... Uh, probably fancy cancels. I mean, that's something that caught my imagination very early on and, and before I could even afford anything that resembled a real fancy cancels. I was, you know, cutting them out of auction catalogs and such and and, and keeping track of them. And so that was I, certainly that would be one of my earliest interests. Um, once, uh, once I ended up at Lynn's um, as a staff writer, which was, you know, very early on in my career, at that point, I had, you know, three small children and, and a very low-paying job, so I couldn't really afford to buy stamps either. So my my attention turned to something that has kind of stayed with me, and, I, and that was uh, uh, collecting. What I call then collecting on a shoestring, and so that was a, a way of finding my uh, ways to keep my collecting activities alive and vibrant, even even when I couldn't buy stamps and covers. And so um, that became my primary approach and one of my primary columns for a number of years. And and, and indeed, I think has, has affected virtually every aspect of uh, my writing, my teaching, uh, my outreach with people is is trying to keep things fun and affordable. Mm-hmm.
0: And you often turn up very weird, oddball things that are getting, not necessarily big ticket items. They're, you know, they're, they're things you maybe uncover in a dollar box or something, but you're as good as anyone in this hobby at telling the stories behind these items. Again, whether it's a, a very expensive item or a cheap item, you really know how to um, make this stuff exciting and engrossing. I feel, what are you looking, what, is there anything you're looking for? Or is it just something you've never seen before? You've seen probably most everything in in your time in the hobby. So you go to a stamp show, you look through a dollar box. What is it that catches your eye? What are your, um, you know, sensors uh, looking out for?
2: You know, it it comes down to, you know, dealers used to always ask me, what are you looking for? What do you collect? And uh, my standard reply to that has simply become whatever I can get a good story from. So, you know, if I sit down to a dollar box or I sit down to a junk bin or, or, I buy a large lot at auction. Um, The first thing I'm going through is, have I, have I seen this before? You know, and I'm, and I'm just looking for something that's unusual. I just uh, turned up something the other day. It was, uh, again, it was a a lot of stuff I bought out of an obscure little auction in Denmark. Uh, And as it turns out, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool piece. It's uh, one of the very, it was on the first uh, commercial flight, uh, across the Pacific on the uh, Philippine clipper. Uh, and it has the letter inside still from the publisher of the uh, Nashville uh, banner, I guess is what yeah, that's what it was. And it turns out he was very well known. He's writing about his experience on the plane and, and it's uh, just a really cool piece. Uh, hmm. You know, I, 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 That's one of the big things I always tell people is always look inside the cover too. There's, there's frequently something really good there.
0: What has your experience been like with virtual summer seminar? Um, I don't know. I, I assume you've uh, been following virtual stamp show this week uh, when we're currently yeah. talking. What what is, what is your take been on the way people have adapted to zoom, social media, you name it during uh, COVID? Again, you're a, you're a staple of the stamp. Sh- you know, you're a very familiar face to a lot of people. Um, what, what's your opinion on the last six months?
1: Yeah. And, and how, as a, teacher of the virtual summer seminar how different was it was it was it easier or harder well that's
2: a very complex question first i'll I'll get to charles first and i I think you know collectors have adapted i think amazingly uh to to this what is now an online world for most of us you know and I'll, i'll backtrack you know back even as as recently as five or six years ago, and I, I would do, or even when I was uh, editor and publisher of Stamp Collector, a little further back, um, there were as many as twenty five to thirty five percent of collectors who were still not online in any significant way. And obviously, that has changed. But in the last six months, you know, because of the pandemic, we can't go to shows, we can't go to stamp club meetings. Uh, you got to do something. So I, I've collectors have adapted amazingly those collectors and and several i know personally who never had any intention of going online other than maybe the last minute snipe bid on ebay or something uh, are now zooming with the best of us and uh it, it's it's been a wonderful thing to watch you know the collectors club has become uh one of the probably one of the greatest outreaches in the in the hobby at this point um, because of allowing as many people to come in and register for the Programs as possible uh, at no charge. From an educational standpoint, it's been it's been also good, and I think the APS. Well, I know the APS is is going to turn online education into a, a permanent part of its outreach as well. Uh, as As an instructor, it's for me personally, it's been a little bit more challenging because. Um, as, as an instructor and as a, a frequent public speaker for many, many years, um, I rely on an audience. You know, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, sitting here right now. I'm looking at you guys I'm, I'm you know, reading your faces and, and such. And when I've got a class full of people and I'm trying to, Teach whatever it is I'm teaching, whether it's paper manufacturing or printing or, or whatever aspect that I'm, I'm teaching. You know, I'm looking for the puzzled looks. I'm looking for someone who may have a question who's not forthright about raising their hand right away. And with the, at least with the platform that we use for summer seminar, I have no visual cues. Mm. Uh, and so You know, it was a more formal type of lecture. Uh, I'm used to, you know, I'm used to to fitting what they say, 75 pounds into a 10-pound bag. I've I've got way more than I can possibly teach in the allotted time. Mm -hmm. And I I utilize students' questions and what they want to know to really help shape what I'm I'm teaching. And so in a a, uh, forum where I don't have the visual cues uh, it's it's a little bit more difficult you know we'd stop and we take questions here and there um, and I think it still worked out very well but it is it is a it's
1: a different medium for that mm-hmm. so do you see this as a as a viable solution going forward even when the summer seminar opens up for in in class uh, sessions having it online as well i would I mean, I imagine it would still somewhat be easier because you'd be able to read off the people who are at least in the classroom.
2: I I do, and and the platform, (coughs) excuse me, the platform that APS uses may change to some extent at some point. But you know, when uh, for example, one of the classes that I that I had this year, I had fifty students in it, Mm -hmm. and so there was no way that we could get the visuals uh, on those. Um, I don't think. That the electronic or the online version will ever completely replace the in person, as long as the in person is still a possibility, right. um, because there's so much else that happens there on a social level as well as as a philatelic and a learning level. But uh, I, it's it's very clear uh, that the APS showed that uh, that it's a very very viable and I think an important aspect, um, and I think I think it's opened a whole new channel for. Them.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. i'm going to go back to something you mentioned briefly at the beginning because i think at least to me it's fascinating and i'm sure people listening as well you mentioned these uh post office boxes in new mexico right Can you explain a little bit what that's all about so i think that's one i think that's one of the best philatelic stories somebody who does not maybe doesn't collect stamps or doesn't know stamps i think this is one of the avenues we can used to get him in the hobby because this is a story that anyone with any appreciation of history can um, perk up to.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when uh, a lot of people don't know too much about the Manhattan Project, but of course it was in Hanford, Washington. It was in, there's an office in Washington, DC, you know, several different places, but the primary uh, office was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And this was Project Y. Uh, and in 19... 19- in early nineteen forty three they took over the uh, Los Alamos Boys School, which was uh, a couple of little buildings on the top of the mesa um, and and suddenly within a few months built uh, this city top secret city that eventually housed you know more than thirty five hundred people before the end of the war and it's it's not a secret that could be kept now, uh, but here you are you, you're on a mountaintop. Uh, they didn't have blackout procedures or anything, so you, you know at night time all the all the people in the in the valley and the places below could see the lights and wondered what was going on. But the aspect that obviously interested me the most was the mail, and uh, everything had to go through uh, the the first drop box that was created was PO Box sixteen sixty three Santa Fe New Mexico. And so, anyone who <clears throat> who came to Los Alamos had to come through PO Box 1663. Uh, if you were born during the war, you were born in PO Box 1663. If you got married, you were got, you were married in PO Box 1663. Um, you know, uh, Montgomery Ward's and and other catalog producers and such um, got tired of of sending hundreds of catalogs. To, to this one post office box, you know, which is, uh, what, what are these people doing? Uh, but everything—it was—it's the first and only time in United States history where mail was civilian mail was uh, was censored without um, permission of the uh, of the civilians uh, and and unmarked as well. So everything coming in, if I was stationed up in Los Alamos and everything came in to me at box 1663, that was all censored and marked just as any other World War II mail would be. Uh, But if, uh, you know, if you were my nephew and you were living in New Rochelle and I mailed you a letter, uh, first of all, you didn't know where I was. You knew I was in New Mexico somewhere because of the P.O. box in in Santa Fe. Uh, But you didn't know where I was, what I was doing. I couldn't tell you anything and all my mail would be censored, but it wouldn't be marked. So when you would get a letter from me, you, you wouldn't have any idea that I'm on a top secret project. If I said anything that wasn't quite proper, they'd send it back to me and rewrite re- the letter. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't censor it or mark it in any way. It would be sent back to me to rewrite. And so there was a that's one of the reasons why particularly a lot of the outgoing mail has never been identified as coming from the drop boxes because it's not censored. It's not marked in any way that would, uh, allow you to know otherwise.
1: Huh? It's crazy.
2: It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, uh, you know, so much of it was destroyed, uh, not just by me, uh, (laughs) but, but by other people as well, you know, people who left a lot of the scientists, uh, Well, to back up a little bit, virtually everybody who was assigned to Los Alamos was told to destroy all their personal paperwork, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's laboratory materials, correspondence, anything like this, because of national security issues. And so a lot of the people, when they left uh, the hill, the hill as it was called, destroyed a lot of this. Uh, There were a few collectors up there. So, you know, there are three or four names that show up regularly within... uh, uh, within the correspondence, it is known.
1: Hmm. So you've written uh, how many books? Ten, ten books?
2: Ten books altogether. Uh, only three of them
1: are philatelic. Okay. Uh, yeah. the others...
0: I was in a, I was in a bookstore not long ago, and, and your name popped up. You can talk a little bit about what else you've written, because it's fascinating. You've yeah. got these kind of double life, uh, masquerading <laughs> as a non-philatelist.
2: <laughs> right. So... Um, I started working with uh, with a publishing company. This is I don't know. It's probably two thousand six or so. <clears throat> I Started working with a publishing company in Great Britain and uh, writing uh, different different types of books. I've written books on uh, uh, Mark Twain. I've written several books on uh, Matthew Brady, uh, you know, the Civil War photographer. On uh, Edward S. Curtis, the uh, Southwest. Uh, photographer of indians and such um and on down the line just uh, and these are primarily these are are more coffee table books are very there's certainly plenty of text in there but they're very very image rich and um, the fun part of the process on those was that i had complete license to be able to go out and research whatever images i wanted Uh, to include you know I I had full freedom of of, of publishing what I wanted to so when I did uh, a book on the uh, Cherokee tribe for example I went out to Cherokee North Carolina uh, went to the reservation dug through their their archives and their photo archives and such and uh, was able to I think make a a create much more interesting books so um, that's that's the type of publishing I've done and again I periodically you know I don't know whenever they, they reprint them some of them are, are still in, in print and I see different editions of them uh, they certainly don't let me know because they're done on contract but I, I run into them periodically
1: so are you working on anything now uh, since the pandemic started now that you're spending more time at home are you researching a new topic or
2: uh... <laughs> well i've got I've got a, a number of different book ideas but again the the time isn't there for me to work on them right, right now so uh, i have things that work I, I work on on multiple things simultaneously you know even even with articles I've, i'm working on articles that i probably won't publish for another year and a half or two yet because i'm still gathering material or gathering background material for them. what happens is um you know i'll let's say i buy a large collection somewhere and I start going through it as I break it down the the materials that I don't sell or resubmit to auction or whatever um, goes into my different uh, collections and a lot of times these are held in Hollinger boxes or file folders or or whatever until uh, they reach what I call critical mass and once that Hollinger box explodes then it's time to write about it or or to exhibit it or whatever Um,
1: it's a fantastic process (laughs) It's just when the, whatever starts overflowing, is what you're doing next. Yeah, and you know it's funny because sometimes, um, sometimes things will
2: come to me within a short period of time. I may, or, or I become obsessed with it enough, I actively start searching for a number of different uh, different items to to complete uh, whatever it is I'm, I'm writing about. Uh, and other times, you know, maybe ten years in between adding items to it. And then uh, there there is still my one of my favorite collections and I'm still I'm, I'm always actively adding to it and I actually' we'll will come up with an exhibit at some point on this and I call it my uh, philatelical chamber of horrors and this is uh, this is based on um, one of the early very earliest stamp dealers who uh, anytime somebody brought a forgery into him he just pin it up to the wall immediately you know so, uh, but for me so many collectors myself included have have inadvertently destroyed materials uh, through uh, uh, poor stewardsmanship, um, or sometimes they'll destroy actually a, a good philatelic item trying to turn it into something better and so i collect all this stuff and i periodically write call calm about it but all these all these horrors that people have collected you know this includes a, uh, even i i've got a nice one dollar uh, mint transmiss that had curled up over the years and somebody tried to uncurl without doing it properly and it's in three pieces you know <laughs> uh, things never hinged though you know it's <laughs> <laughs> or i've got a beautiful four margin number two uh that uh, that's only missing a quarter of the upper left corner so things like this so These I, I want to make uh, an exhibit that will truly terrify people at some
0: point mm-hmm. yeah you're hopefully it, t- teach them in the process what uh exactly what not to do well,
2: exactly. You know, and and some of the other items that are that are in this include things like, um, are you are you familiar with the uh, control perfins on some of the early private perf stamps? Well, of course, a lot of those, and particularly on some of the higher, you know, four cent and things like this, are pretty scarce items with the with the, with the control perfin. You know, the catalog's twelve hundred dollars or whatever, but someone who isn't aware of that. Uh, sees it as just a Shermac private perf, which is normally worth less than a, a standard imperf. So they'll cut the private perfs off. And the only way that you know that it's a Shermac is because it's got the control perf, which would have made it a much more valuable item, except, gee, somebody cut the private perfs off. And so
1: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> and there's a lot of things like that that uh, the people have ruined trying to be greedy.
0: You have not necessarily... And I, this is not something I told you we were going to talk about, but it just came to mind. because it makes me laugh. You've not necessarily ruined stamps, but you have enhanced and modified stamps at various times. <laughs> <laughs> is that correct? You you you, have, you you seem to have a lot of fun with the hobby. There's a lot of people who take it seriously, and that's great. There's a lot of people who treat it, um, you know, um, uh, very studiously. But you you like to make people laugh as well. It seems you've posted some. Very uh, amusing uh, concoctions on Facebook, where you have fused and and uh, made sort of a chimera of multiple stamps to great comedic effect.
2: Exactly, and as a matter of fact, I even have a, a one frame uh, exhibit that I used to. I'll have to trot it out again one of these days. But back in the days before Photoshop, and there was a day before then. Um, okay. I did these, I did all these old school and, and you know, they're, they're Franken's true Franken stamps. And, and so what it is, is, you know, of course the, the, the most famous of these, and this is what inspired me to begin this, to begin with is uh, Pat Hurst used to claim credit for it, but, but I, and I don't know who did it for the first time, but you're you familiar with the, the uh, three passetta, uh, nude Goya uh, goyas yep exactly well it's the same you know the same size and same color basically as a three cent Mother's Day stamp showing uh, Whistler's mother uh, you know from the 1930s and so by very carefully trimming out the nude figure and and uh, reposing her on the on the three cent stamp to cover up the rocking chair old lady um, you know that there's a very very hilarious um version of that and so with that i started trying to come up with things that were equally as funny equally as creative by uh by cutting vignettes out of one stamp and 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 sticking it onto another and and doing it as seamlessly as possible so that uh so that you can't really see where the cuts are made or you know so a lot of a lot of exacto blades and a lot of I used to do this when I had long telephone calls and I had my hands free <laughs> and so um, then I started working into the postal history aspect of that so this would also involve you know some forged postmarks and some things like this uh, and uh, to, to the point where I actually created a, a storyline for all this and that's uh, that's where those are coming from and so uh, I periodically post some of those images as, as you've seen. <laughs> But it, it, to me, but, but to get back to it, yeah, the, the hobby has to be fun. If, you, if you're not enjoying the hobby, then, you, you know, you should find something else to do. Um, we're in this, you know, even prof- those of us who are professional in hobby, if we're not enjoying what we're doing, we might as well be doing something else. So mm-hmm. enjoyment has always been the, the, the primary goal for me.
1: Well, it's good to see somebody um, doing something positive with the the kind of makeshift two stamps into one The the ones that i've seen are people trying to fool uh other collectors by cutting out the center of a jenny and putting it in there or the pan americans making them inverted and they they're quite convincing uh to the untrained eye but um you're, but again, you're the
0: best intentioned forger out
1: yes there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> well, and then it's funny, Beck, I, I don't know if you ever knew uh, Roger and Bonnie Riga of Riga Stamps. They ran a, a business for many years, and their fo- their primary focus were things like revenues and Cinderella's and things like this. And, and early on, uh, they kind of fell in love with what I was doing. And so, uh, again, this is at a time when I really didn't have funds to invest in the hobby to speak of. Uh, but they what they would do is they they actually had a, a ready market for my creations uh and, and you know obviously not to defraud anybody it was for the novelty mm-hmm. of it uh but they uh, would put in orders with me so i would have to make <laughs> so many of this creation this creation and then they'd trade out stock for me so i was uh, uh, able to, to to get stamps by cutting up others <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty funny other than uh, New Mexico, you you um you always surprise me whenever I see you at a show. I think you had uh, French bicycle revenue stamps fairly recently, right? Um, you, you, it, it's always something. What what are the other uh, interests that you keep coming back to? What are the ones that are not passing fads that maybe you've built an exhibit, or again, maybe it's just the the box full of stuff. But what what are the um what what are the ones that have that have stuck with you the longest? Well, you know, I've got,
2: I, I have multiple collections of, of things that I really uh, that I really do enjoy, whether I ex- exhibit them or not. Um, certainly, modern postal history and unusual uses have, have always been forefront. Um, I love auxiliary markings. Anything that has slowed or delayed the mail, the stranger, the cause, the better. Uh, you know, whether it's you know, postal carrier couldn't complete his rounds because of the vicious dog or or uh the quarantine in in uh, for all plants in hawaii or we you know all these different things and crash covers all this kind of stuff so i, I love anything like that um certainly uh, uh fancy cancels continues to be something that that i enjoy um including modern fancy cancels a lot of people don't don't really realize that a lot of the pictorial machine cancels of the uh, '60s through '90s, in particular, you know, and those are struck really nicely on a stamp. They're, you know, tomorrow's uh, fancy cancels and, and premium items. So I, I love doing those as well. Um, I love first day covers that uh, that actually have traveled through the mail um, and, and bear evidence of that. You know, that's that's how they started out. Before we had uh, grace periods and uh, plastic envelopes that protect them and such, and so I, I love anything like that uh anything that's been damaged in the
0: mail i you know
2: and again all the weird stuff but
0: <laughs> and so you're not just i mean you are interested in stamps as works of art and as um you know little bits of our history but but the postal operations also interest you as well the actual getting from point a to point b i think a lot of people just stick the stamp in their album and that's that it's got a picture of a a boat or an airplane on it but for you it's as much about the uh transport of the mail as it is about the stamp itself
2: it's it's the whole it's the whole bundle i mean you know uh, efos uh you know Irish freaks noddies play varieties all that kind of stuff so everything from the planning of the stamp on through until the item has, has been delivered. But yeah, the, the transmission of the mail is, is, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times people try to compare stamps and coins and, and coins are quite static by, by comparison to me, you know, cause you've got, you've got graded, graded coins. You can have your 1871 Indian head penny and, you know, uh, rated however level you want to get it to for, for uncirculated, but once you have you have with the stamps, you have the whole world of the the printing the designing the processing, and then once you add the mail processing to it too, you just you've just opened up in the entire universe to to uh, it's it's an en- endless possibilities and yeah uh, you no know, mail processing is fascinating and um, you know we often think that a lot of the research for early mail processing has been done. Uh, but there's new discoveries constantly being made, and and with and of course with the rapid advance of technology in the last twenty years, and the internet, and uh, so many things becoming available, we're finding resources um, that we've never had access to, even uh, even newspaper accounts of things, uh, and so there's there's a whole world of of additional research that can be done.
1: So speaking on the. The advance advancement of technology. You, you've been on the APS board of directors for quite some time now, right? Well, it, it's
2: been quite a while since I've been off, but I oh, was okay. I was on APS board of directors for for a decade. Yeah,
1: yeah. Did, and what what years were those? From when that to... was from roughly um, roughly
2: nineteen ninety eight to two thousand eight or so. Oh, okay. I've, I've been off quite a while. But
1: okay. Um, were there any changes in those? So that was kind of as technology was just, just taking off. Did you see any changes in the direction the APS was taking during those years to how to promote the the hobby? And and now that you're off the board, are you seeing a, it change as well? I mean, they must be focusing. I don't know. This seems like a kind of a loaded question. Well, not not loaded so much
2: as complex yeah um, it's of course most much of the time that I was on the APS board our our primary uh, mission was was dealing with the match factory moving out of the old headquarters and into the match factory and making sure that <clears throat> we were going to have the financial future for the APS to uh, to actually turn that into a revenue source. So that was, that was one of the biggest functions, but along with that, you know, our first efforts at the website uh, mm-hmm. there too. And, you know, we had a lot of misstarts, um, but yeah, all, all that was, and, and we were concerned about uh, outreach. One of the other big things that has never really come to fruition at the time, but, you know, we, we, we're moving into the Match Factory. We were um, expanding our capabilities as an organization. We were um, actually looking for outreach. And so uh, Bob Lamb was still executive director at this point. He and I had a number of conversations. We're uh, actively beginning to reach out towards uh, other, um, other collectibles. Uh, of course, the, the first one that came to mind was uh, Delteologist We thought that perhaps uh, by by forming uh, by having the APS as a strong central um, uh, administrative arm, that we could actually work with other collectibles and take over not take over uh, take over the functions for them Hmm. to help them thrive. So we thought that we could use you know for example if we would take over um, administration of postcard collecting, of baseball card collecting, things like this that, that really had no... You know, th- there's virtually no other... Other than coins, there's virtually no other collectible hobby that has the infrastructure that we do. Right. And right. so we really did feel that we could reach out to other collectibles, help them thrive, and help us as well.
1: And mm-hmm. that's um, something I'd still like to see APS do at some point. But Diversify yeah. the... um the, not the customer base but the membership base
2: diversify, diversify the membership base and and also take on functions for other organizations and yeah. and help um, you know there's still so much disorganization and so much fraud in a number of different collectible areas and mm-hmm. uh, i really did feel that we could that we could help help others out a lot uh, with that and of course we have we have our own outreach that we need to worry about within our own hobby. And, and that's been, you know, as, and again, as technology has <clears throat> exploded, you know, I, I still hear people complaining about how stamp collecting is a dying hobby. And you guys both know this. It's that we could, nothing could be further from the right. from, from the truth at this point we have. You know, tens of thousands of people who are actively buying and selling on eBay and, and Hipstamp and all these other places, um, none of whom belong to any organization, none of whom subscribe to any publication, uh, but they're spending a lot of time and a lot of money on their hobby. Mm-hmm. And, and reaching these people and more specifically, keeping them from making some of the same mistakes I made as a beginning collector with no network mm-hmm. Um is, is a huge mission for us to deal with at this point. And, and I still don't know how to crack that nut. I mean, I think a yeah. lot of us are trying different ways of doing that, but, um, I don't know how many collectors I have contact with through, through sales on eBay who not only have no affiliation with any organized part of the hobby, nor do they have any interest in it, right. but they, but they love their stamps
1: Right, they're operating as a, as an island and trying to find out what they what they want, how they could benefit from an, being part of an organization. Um, exactly,
2: and and convincing them that, that there is indeed a benefit to that
0: is uh, a real challenge. Right? Do you you mentioned earlier that you don't think that the virtual summer seminar is a permanent solution by any means? We always need that physical component with shows, with exhibiting, with a seminar like that. Do you think that one of the ways to reach these people, these islands, as Michael mentioned, is to, um, I guess sort of segue this question, will the virtual component that we've all grown to either love or tolerate over the last couple of months have a lasting impact in the hobby? Do you think this is one way we can maybe reach out to those people? Do you think that there will always be um, remnants of our covid lockdown life moving forward <laughs> oh, yeah, with no question absolutely and and
2: and maybe i miscommunicated before but um while i don't see that the online aspect of the summer seminar will replace the other i see it as an adjunct a permanent right. adjunct, um and certainly a highly desirable one the, the biggest challenge I still see with that, I mean, and certainly we're not, I, I, I would hope that we don't lose everything that we've gained in the last few months in terms, you know, mm-hmm. in, in some ways we've become a, a far more social <laughs> at a distance <laughs> uh, a hobby than we've been in, in, in many, many years. Uh, so I certainly hope we don't lose any of that, but the but I still see a challenge in in reaching those who aren't already inclined. Um, you know, we get the odd person coming in like with the summer seminar online uh, this week. Some of the registrants coming in uh, are new. I think they've signed up uh, another couple of dozen new members just during the last couple of days. So, they, you know, we are getting some people in. But I think a lot of those people are already involved in some organized aspect of the hobby beforehand. And so reaching out and 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 getting to these other people who are very, very active, very, very devoted to their stamps uh, is still a challenge, even even with the online aspect. Although I think we have a better chance at doing it successfully post COVID than we ever have before. Yeah, uh, if there is a post COVID.
1: Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how many of our. I, I wouldn't imagine a lot of our customers on eBay are APS members. The ones that are usually put their APS number in messages when they send us messages, but uh, almost uniformly all APS members put their number at the at the yeah. bottom. But we get maybe five of those a week out of the hundreds and hundreds of messages we receive a week. Christ. So, oh, yeah. hey, you know, oh. how do we as a as as a Stamp dealer reach out to those people and say, "Hey, you'll benefit from being APS members." Mm-hmm. Exactly, and you
2: know and APS used to provide us with uh, uh, post, you know, uh, post paid reply cards that we could include as stuffers with uh, with our stuff right. that we send out. And I've been, you know, I've been an eBay dealer for over twenty years at this point, um, and I have included thousands of those in there and i have probably have recruited half a dozen new members over all that time all those cards mailed i mean the people just until you show them a reason or until they they stumble in hey this is pretty cool Mm -hmm. um they just don't see it
1: yeah they 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 almost have to come to the conclusion themselves you can't tell them what to what to do it seems like they uh and and
2: where we have had some success with outreach is, is letting them know about shows in their area. Yes. And, and, you know, so we get that, but right now, not shows so much. We, you know, we just have, have completed the first uh, show uh, or at least large show uh, since the pandemic hit with the St. Louis Stamp mm-hmm. Expo. Um, and, and again, they, and they did a, you know, they, they did a, a fantastic job now the, the biggest mistake they made is they didn't let anybody know about it you know their, their publicity was uh, was non-existent until just before the show but mm. uh, the the measures they took to try to keep collectors and dealers safe is a is a perfect blueprint and yeah. roadmap for anyone who's contemplating doing a show anytime in the near future going forward you know people really do need to study how st. Louis uh, did this mm-hmm. and, and even still personally i'm still uncomfortable with going to a show but um
1: but as more and more of them happen with this saint louis model and and everything turns out all right and positive people will become more comfortable well exactly
2: um exactly and you know there's a lot of pent-up demand for shows Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, yeah uh, alex said that that all around the Dealers and everybody he spoke to at the show were were positive about the outcome. Every, uh, I think he said twenty out of the twenty one dealers that were there already submitted their their fees for the next show.
2: Right, and and the twenty first one didn't only because he's retiring. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and simultaneously, the same weekend there was also a show in Wichita, and I spoke okay. with a, it was a small show, mm-hmm. uh, and I spoke with a couple of the dealers who did that show as well, and and they had similar reports. You know, there there weren't very many people at the show, uh, but those who came were were ready to spend money and right. were thrilled to do so, uh, and so they all they all had good shows. Um, And again, as you as you mentioned, I think you know once that door begins to start opening a a little bit again, and people become a bit more comfortable with going back to shows, um, the you know I I don't believe for a minute that that we are losing um, the show aspect of our hobby. You know, several people have have predicted that as a result of the uh, downside of the pandemic. Um, People love shows still, and and those are going to. We may lose a couple of shows just because, but I don't, I don't for a minute believe we're going to lose shows in general. Uh, It's still too important. You know, there's nothing like, you know, as, as much as I love going on, on eBay or, or even going through dealers websites and such, um, there's nothing like the serendipity of digging through a dealer's box at his table. You know, it's just, (laughs) (laughs) yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, It's a completely different, uh, experience.
0: Well, I just want to thank you again, Wayne, for joining us, uh, especially on such short notice. We we really yeah. appreciate uh, having you here. And it's great to catch you again. I, I, I miss seeing you, um, miss sitting at your table and, and seeing what you've got. But uh, it's fun to reconnect like this virtually. Absolutely.
1: This, this absolutely. has been great. Thank you so much for your for your time.
0: Well, th- yeah, thank you guys for having me. and uh, I'll Hopefully we'll hopefully we'll see you in person uh, before long.
2: Yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah, hopefully absolutely.
0: So. Thanks thank a you. lot, Wayne. All right. Thank All right. you. Take care that was a lot of fun uh, i was I was really looking forward to catching up with Wayne and I'm glad that we were able to uh, to connect with him. yeah that was that was great uh and and, and when you first um, had conversations with philatelists to me, uh, I think it was fun when you talked about um, sort of getting beneath the facade of a lot of these people, and I love Wayne talking about. Uh, the books he writes on, um, you know, uh, these these great Western photographers, Civil War photographers, mm-hmm. cu- you know, again, cutting up stamps to make little comedic vignettes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that sort of depth, you know, you go to a stamp show, you see Wayne with his table, with his stock, and he's got cool things to show you. But he's stamp dealer Wayne. And when we do something like this, it's fun to, um, to, to sort of see the three-dimensional.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the, see the man behind the stamp.
0: Exactly. Behind yeah. the... Uh, the stamp of uh, clown superimposed on, <laughs> which is one of my favorite uh, works of art that he created. But no, it, it's fun to hear about his background. I think growing up in New Mexico, not somewhere where there's necessarily a stamp store on every corner, mm-hmm. um, you know, no stamp exhibitions, no you know he Wayne it sounds like really had to figure it out on his own. And um, right, and and that's it's a
1: great testament to how much he wanted to stick with the hobby. You know, we spoke with Graham last week and he talked about those people who want to get started in the hobby, but they, they don't know how to. And then Wayne just, he just got started he, he, and he stuck and, with it. And Some I love people, he's the, the first to admit the mistakes that he made. Right. Right. And that's exactly why we, we need mentors for, for people exactly. early on as well. But,
0: um, and now Wayne's one of those mentors. He's helping people avoid the pitfalls that he fell into very early on. And I think that's great that he's giving back so much. But at the same time, recognizing
1: that they're not uh, be all and end all mistakes. They're not, you know, it's not the end of philately. If you accidentally tear a $1 Trans-Mississippi into three pieces, it's just.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, you're right. Again, the fact that he's so approachable. So that's what, um, you know, when I met him for the first time early on in my time with the hockey. He doesn't make you feel bad if you, if right. you mess up. And I think that's – I think his um, philatelic horrors exhibit is, is – it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, tsk, tsk, you ruined yeah. a stamp. It's, hey, let's laugh at this together and learn from it at the same it's time. It's a testament to the philatelists we once were. That is very true. And maybe still are sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, this was, this was a lot of fun. Um, uh, we are – for anyone listening, uh, we're on YouTube. Yep, We're on Podbean we're on Google Podcasts Spotify Podcasts Apple Podcasts yeah we now have a website philatelypodcast.com yes and the email is is equally as I was just gonna say the email is equally as create at (laughs) philatelypodcast at gmail.com right Um, so if anyone wants to reach out we love hearing from you Um, actually Wayne reached out to us yeah and said how much you enjoyed the podcast and I said I've been wanting to have you on thank you for um, you know lighting a fire under Just so a
1: look behind the curtain there it's how it
0: how it happened exactly so yeah. reach out to us please we love hearing from you um until next time this has been a lot of fun michael and uh can't wait to do it again yeah absolutely
1: and we'll uh see you next time and good luck overseas
0: thank you we'll uh again i'll tell you all about the serbian postal museum when i'm back
1: yeah sounds great
0: thank right. Thanks michael
1: thank you